just about anything. I will rationalize and justify my actions, my behavior, my thoughts in order to form it to my will. For one, this don't sit right with my soul and two people are getting hurt. There's going to be some, some death coming sometime soon. Little did I know I was in Scarry spiritually died long ago. Hello everybody, how's it going today? I am uh, Bailey and this is Trent. And today we are on Crucifying Addiction. Special guest for y'all. Introduce yourself, man. Hi, my name is Landon. Uh, I am a uh, addict in recovery. Sweet, man. Tell us a little bit about yourself, man. All right, so I am originally from Lubbock, Texas. Uh, I'm 33 years old. I've got a daughter and a small uh, son that was just born about seven weeks ago. Congratulations. Congratulations Thank you. Dude. Thank you, for sure. Man, I lived in Houston for about four years, and now I'm here. So relocated to be closer to my daughter. Dude, we are glad you're here, man. What are you doing for work? I've been plumbing for about eight years, so now it's just plumbing over here. You know, same... Uh, <laughs> Same uh, stuff, different city. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a was it consistent job? It is consistent. Yeah, there's always need for a plumber. Uh, so I've got job security for sure. Dude. Our second cool. plumber on the podcast. Yeah, right on to that. Hey, hey. <laughs> uh, well, Landon, I hear you got a story to tell. I do have a story to tell. I guess I'll. Uh, yeah, go ahead and start from the beginning. Yeah, I uh, I had a good childhood. My parents loved each other for uh, about three years, uh, and then they got divorced. Uh, it was kind of an ugly, ugly deal from from what I remember. I think my very first traumatic memory was them arguing in the kitchen and, and um, me just sitting on the couch being a witness to it. And um, there was virtually no co-parenting whatsoever. I wouldn't say that they hated each other, but they just didn't get along. Because of this, I was put in the middle of some things that I don't think any kid should be in the middle of, you know. And uh, behind that, I, I learned to manipulate at a young age. Uh, and that was a character defect that I would take with me through most of my life. And I became very good at it. But anyway, I, uh, you know, grade school was good. Um, I was a fairly intelligent kid. Went to junior high at Irons. Uh, played sports there. Uh, was also a successful student there. And then, let's see, it was, uh, yeah, it was eighth grade um, was the first time I uh, used alcohol. And and when I used alcohol, it was alcoholically. The whole goal was to get messed up. You know, that was the end game. That was, uh, let's let's get messed up and let's party. And so... That's what we did, man. And uh, I, I did that and carried that same mantra all the way through high school. At first, it started drinking and, and smoking marijuana. And um, that was the stepping stone to other things. Um, I firmly believe that uh, marijuana is a gateway drug. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the like drinking alcohol. Like What led you to just wanting to get messed up? I think the the want to was to fit in. I think the want to was I seen some older guys uh, in in junior high and high school that that's what they were doing. We wanted to emulate them, uh, and a lot of that came from a, f uh, a couple friends of mine that had older brothers, right? And and so we would I would go to their house. I would see their we would see their older brothers getting messed up. They'd have girls over, you know. They'd all be dancing, having a good time, and and that was. Uh, 
almost contagious. That's that we wanted that, you know, we wanted that. Uh, we just happened to start a little bit earlier than they did, I think. So granted, they could have been doing it uh, at our age too, but that's the first time that we saw it showcased. And that's the first time that we wanted what they were doing. And it, start, it started with drinking, you know, and then it graduated to marijuana. You know, I think I, definitely a believer that uh, marijuana is a gateway drug because uh, that's how I started use of other drugs is I would get weed from the weed man and he would have other products, right? Other other drugs. You don't think alcohol led you to marijuana? I think alcohol was the first substance that changed the way I felt. And I liked that. And then shortly after that, it was it was weed that kind of led me to the other things but yeah knowing you could that there was more out there. right knowing that there was more and uh well and knowing that it was attainable you know knowing where i could get it what was the difference between the way you felt before and the way you felt after was it just like the way you thought or like literally a physical feeling so i would say it was more of a social anxiety feeling like uh it was a lubricant um alcohol and weed was a was a lubricant it was a means to talk to more girls. It was a means to fit in more. It was a means to um, be the wild, cool kid, you know, if you will. Uh, and there was a group in my high school that was known for that, you know, and that's just, you know, I think it started off as experimental and, and uh, it led to some worldly things that I wanted. And so I just kept doing it. Where was your relationship with Christ? At the beginning and going through school, man, this is a this is a tough one. So I was on dad's side. I was raised Catholic. On mom's side, I was non-denominational. Uh, and so there was some confusion there regarding organized religion. Mainly, I don't. I didn't fully understand the concept that you could have a personal connection with Christ at that time. It was more of a connection with the church, organized religion, and the people therein. There was no, uh, there was no action on my end to improve a relationship with Christ. So, drinking and smoking weed through school. Did you get caught by your parents? Many, many times. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. What What would be the consequences of that? Uh, usually, it would be grounded. You know, uh, phone phone taken away, uh, video game console taken away. Uh, no going out on the weekends with the friends I was hanging out with. Um, this, of course, uh, started rebellion. I, I was not having none of that. You couldn't tell me nothing. So instead of feeling the responsibility of your actions, it was more like my parents suck. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, it was more of like I had the view that, well, everybody's doing this. You know, my group of friends is doing this and they're not getting in trouble. Their parents don't care. It was the blame game. I was the victim of overbearing parents. Did you ever think that maybe it was to help you? Not until recently, man. Not until recently. Yeah, the 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 consequences didn't matter. I was just going to do what I wanted to do regardless. Um, looking back on it now in hindsight, yeah, of course they were doing it out of love, right? I was. I just wasn't in a position to receive that love. You know, I, there was. I was so selfish and so self dependent and. All I cared about was self-indulgence, man. Whatever was going to make me happy, you know, and uh, that did not entail sitting at my house grounded under my parents' roof. So going out of school, how long did you go on 
being the victim of, of the consequences around you, when did it get worse? And when did you start regretting some decisions? So um, I really think that like uh, pride played a big part in that because uh, my life essentially from the end of high school up, up until now really has been a series of build some stuff up, burn it all down, rebuild some stuff, burn it all down. And all that was my self-will, dude. All that was uh, me running the show. It was me taking the wheel and doing what I wanted to do. I don't think I fully was aware that it was a problem until I started hanging out with some criminals, man. Until I started, you know, getting introduced to that that criminal underworld, you know. And I and that didn't sit well with my soul, but I stuck around anyways. So tell us the story about that. Like, when did you go? Whoa. I'm surrounded by criminals. Yeah. So I went to college too, right? And I uh, I got a an associate's degree in criminal justice, ironically. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. During that time, during my college stint, it was I had graduated onto harder drugs, right? I was doing I was drinking and doing cocaine on the weekends. Got introduced to all the pills, you know, big pharma, um, you know, whether it be Xanax or uh, oxycodones, hydrocodones, like that was my thing. That's what I wanted, you know, and uh, all through my college career, there wasn't a single class that I didn't go too high uh, criminally in my criminal justice classes, you know. Um, my instructor was a cop, you know, and I mean, granted, I probably wasn't the only one there high, right? But uh, that was, that's what I did, man. I got out of college because um, my daughter's mom got pregnant, and uh, so I was able to finish college somehow, but some grace was involved in that, I think. Me and her stuck together for a while. She completely quit everything cold turkey. We used to use a little bit together and drink and party and stuff. Uh, she quit everything cold turkey, even cigarettes. Yeah, God bless her soul. Um, and she's a great woman. She's a great mom. I, I didn't quit though. I kept it moving. I kept doing what I was going to do. The stress and, uh, hard work of being a new father, uh, got to me, bro. And it, it, it fueled my use, you know? Um, and we end up splitting up, uh, shortly thereafter. I think maybe Lindley, my daughter was two or three. Uh, it's kind of vague, man, because I was really out there. There's a lot of stuff I don't remember during that time period. Do you remember how you felt not being able to be a father at that time? At that time, not yet. I uh, I knew that it wasn't right that I was leaving. The benefit of me using at the time was greater than the consequences I was feeling at that time. Because basically what it translated to is I was still being a part-time dad, but being a full-time junkie. There was some uh, uncomfortability and some irritability and some remorse there. You know, I was upset with myself that I walked out. But what did I do to mask that? And so I did more drugs. Did you ever realize that you were, or it sounds like that you spent more time being a junkie than being a father? Uh, so in the early years, I was a, I was a good dad. So you know, those first three years, um, I was there, I was present. But after me and Courtney broke up. It was, it took a turn for the darkness, you know. Um, yeah, the complete lack of being a father. Uh, you know, I would have her, um, dur during some active addiction from age three to seven, I would have her on some weekends. Um, and, you know, we would, uh, I would be using and she would be with me, you know. And so, yes, I was there physically, but I was not there emotionally, spiritually, even mentally. 
uh, as a father. And I can't get those years back. And there's some regret there, man. There's still some guilt, some shame. Those things that come with being, well, they come with not being a father, you know, when you're supposed to be. So to get back to the criminal stuff, you know, uh, once I, once we broke up is when it really took a turn for the worst. And, um, I started hanging out with some people that I wouldn't have necessarily hung out with otherwise, you know, they had the, they had the stuff I wanted and I was going to hang out with them and manipulate and exploit them to get what I wanted, you know? Um, and so that's what I did. And, um, you know, it started, uh, it started light, you know, uh, I got introduced to some harder stuff, you know, I got introduced to some, some methamphetamines and, um, started hanging out with that group of people, man. And I'll tell you what, man, there's, um, that was probably the first time I really seen some evil stuff too, uh, in, in that, in that underbelly, in that criminal underbelly, man, I'm talking about some violent stuff. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, some people getting very, very hurt with weapons and, and, uh, some things were, were not okay. You know, um, I was there to get high, man, you know, and they were there to, uh, to get violent. You know, we were all, we were both in the same place, but for different reasons. And so I started hanging out with some gang members too. Um, and, uh, they were part of the Aryan circle. And, um, I was like, I, from, <laughs> from the exterior, I looked like a, uh, rich white kid, you know? <laughs> uh, and so they approached me and they said, Hey, you want to sell some dope for us? And me thinking, well, yeah, I get, you know, I get free dope out of this. Right. You know, so I'm all about it. And of course I did happen to know some college kids, you know, and, and I had grown up in Lubbock. And so I knew the crowd that was going to want the drugs right and so um i started to uh, hang out with them i started selling their dope they wanted me to join the gang and stuff and i uh i was never about that life you know i i uh i declined the offer and so they uh, they call it an fof which is friend of the family so that's what i was and uh basically what that entailed was they give me x amount of drugs every week and i go sell them and bring back the money you know and so what i didn't know at the time was all the all the shit that came with that which was running guns to uh, i used to drive guns from from lubbock to odessa um i used to um, drive large amounts of of dope from lubbock to odessa and so with that comes a lot of fear and anxiety especially when you're on meth uh lots of paranoia i quickly realized that um you know this this ain't for me you know i was in it for the money i was in it for the dope i also witnessed a lot of uh like armed robberies kicking people's doors in and um you know people's people getting tasered and zip tied and held up at gunpoint and robbed for all of their belongings, you know, and uh, and so and I was actively choosing to do this, man, all behind getting high. And at that point is when I noticed like, hey, man, like. For one, this don't sit right with my soul and two people are getting hurt uh, and, and three, like there's going to be some some death coming sometime soon. Little did I know I was in, already spiritually died long ago. My relationship with God up to this point had been very non-existent. I knew there, I had a God concept, right, because of the church that I was brought up into, um, the Catholic and the non-denominational. I knew there was a God, right? My problem with, was that I had no connection to him, didn't try to form a connection with him, and, you know, that little God voice that you have inside, I didn't listen to it ever. 
It was Landon's voice doing, running the show. Self will run riot, like they say in the program. I'll hear God speaking and I'll see some, some signs and some synchronicities. Uh, but I'll discount them. I'll, uh, well, it's coincidence. And, you know, I, I don't believe in coincidence today, but like I would write it off. I would justify and rationalize, which was just another form of my, the disease of addiction. You know, I will do that to just about anything. I will rationalize and justify my actions, my behavior, my thoughts in order to form it to my will. So what took that train off the rails? The criminal activity, the running and gunning, and literally running gun. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what took that off the rails? What was the big change from that environment? Let's see. I was so set the scene. I guess I was in Lubbock. I went to a house party out in Slayton. This was a different group of friends. This was no gang members involved in this one. This was kind of like my my high school slash work crowd is who I was hanging out with at this time. I end up driving my car home after a long night of drinking and cocaine and beer pong. I'm driving home. I had some Xanax. I took some Xanax before I got home. It was about a 20-minute drive to the house. And um, I end up falling asleep at the wheel, swerving to oncoming traffic. It was about 4 in the morning. Thank God there was no traffic out. I was literally one of the only people on the road, you know. Uh, and so I end up falling asleep. I drive my car off a uh, – it's probably about an 8 or 9-foot drop. I drive off a drainage culvert. And bottom out and break my front axle. Uh, my car careens into a, a front yard of somebody's house. And uh, this, I think, was a, a spiritual sign, too. I don't, I still have my, a hard time wrapping my head around this one, but I basically careen up into somebody's front yard and they have a bird bath, right? And I hit the bird bath, a big concrete bird bath. And I hit the birdbath, dude. And on top, of course, there's an angel that comes down and lands right on my hood. And at the time, dude, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. so, so at the time, dude, like, I'm not processing none of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm like in my car, like, oh, you know, and I had just almost hit you. Yeah. I had almost hit somebody's house with my car. You know, the only thing that stopped it was the birdbath. You know, I, I was probably about four feet from the corner of their, uh, one of their bedrooms. You know, needless to say, they come running out of the house because it's loud, you know, uh, and I'm dazed and confused. Um, I roll out of my car. I'm laying on the ground. And the first thing I hear is there's a fire department right across the street, by the way. Uh, first thing I hear is sirens. And I'm I'm messed up. Uh, I got probably 25 Zanny bars in the scattered throughout my car now. So I can't conceal those because there's probably one in the back, one in the front, one in the vent, one in the, you know, wherever. They they blew up. They flew everywhere. Uh, and so uh, I'm freaking out. Um, I get up off the ground. I rolled out of my driver's seat and landed on the ground. And I got up whenever those people came outside. And I told them, I remember telling them this. I said, I got to get out of here. And I literally tried to get back in my driver's seat, put it in reverse and drive off <laughs> with a broken front axle. So, uh, yeah, I uh, wasn't able to make it very far. And, uh, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, the cop rolls up and first he asked if I'm okay, you know, and I said, yeah, I think so. I think I'm good. I was telling him where I came from, what I was doing, told him that I had a few beers earlier in the night, which, you know, was more than a few beers. And he said, you've been doing anything else tonight? No, you lied, completely lied to him. I uh, said, all right, let's do a sobriety test. Well, I ended up passing the sobriety test. With a broken back, somehow. I, I don't know. I think it was mostly adrenaline. 
Um, and so he questions me again after the sobriety test. And basically, I end up admitting that, uh, you know, I had been using cocaine and drinking for most of the night. He says, all right, I'm going to search the car. Well, he searches the car, doesn't say anything about the Xanax, finds an empty cocaine bag in my passenger door panel, which happened to be my friend's from earlier that night. And he's like, what's this? I'm like, I don't know. It's in the passenger door. It's clearly not mine. I was driving the car. Uh, and he's like, well, you're in possession of it. Long story short, he charged me with, uh, possession under a gram and I went to jail and I told him I'll, you know, I'll fight it. I'll see you in court. Basically. Is your first time in jail? First time. Well, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, uh, this is my first, uh, this is my first time, uh, catching a felony. This is my first felony. I've had some misdemeanors in the past. Um, very light misdemeanors. Um, usually weed charges paraphernalia, uh, possession of marijuana. So, um, you know, quick little in and outs. Um, and that was basically the extent of those probation in there too. Uh, anyway, I go to, um, go to jail with the, with my broken bag. Still don't know it's broken at this time. I get to jail while the adrenaline stops at jail and I become a miserable person to be around. I'm in pain. Uh, I'm sitting in booking and, um, I can't sit in the chair, so I keep laying on the floor, and they keep getting mad at me, like, hey, you can't lay on the floor in booking, right? You know, you got to sit in the chair. So I'm not sitting in the chair. They keep they they keep telling me to get up and sit in the chair, and I'll get back on the floor. And then they tell me to get in the chair, I get on the floor. So finally, they're like, all right, we're putting him in the drunk tank. You know, he's messed up, whatever. So I'm able to go to sleep in there on my side. I remember laying there just kind of crippled. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I wake up, dude, and that's when it was bad. I wake up, thank God, because they're telling me, hey, you're getting bonded out. Like, yes. You know, my roommate JJ is the one who bonded me out. I go home, I get back to the house. And at this point, the Xanax is still on me. Like, you know, all I want to do is sleep. So I get to the house and go to sleep. I wake up maybe nine hours later. Um, and come to, man, I don't even really know. I know I'm in my house, but I don't remember how I got there. I don't remember the jail visit. Um, that's one of the things about Xanax is you black out, you know, it's, uh, or at least for me anyway, it was a full on blackout. I remember the wreck though. I remember that, uh, vividly. I remember the crash. I remember the sobriety test. I remember those people's faces. The angel landing. I do. I remember the angel. That's vivid for sure, too. Um, and so I get, uh, I wake up that morning. I try to get out of bed and I can't, I can't get up. I yelled at my roommate, JJ, come in here. So he comes in there and he pulls me up off the bed and uh, he's like, dude, your, your back is swollen, like the size of a basketball. And I'm like, well, then we need to go to the hospital. But first, I need you to crush up one of those oxycodone <laughs> on my dresser. Oh yeah. my gosh! <laughs> yeah, and so that's what happened, dude. Is I I I, I snorted a, a not an oxycodone, and uh, then we went to the hospital. Man, pain reliever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah narcotic, heavy narcotic pain reliever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I get to the hospital, uh, walk in. I basically, you know, JJ helps me up to the to the counter and like, hey, I need to be seen. Like, you know, something's wrong with my back. Uh, so I go get an X-ray. My T seven vertebrae is shattered into six pieces. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the doctor's like, I don't know how you walked in here, um, but we got to do an immediate surgery. 
And so next thing I know, I don't know how long it's been. I wake up in a hospital bed in a, in a massive amount of pain. Families all around. Uh, little did I know that they had already seen my talk screen, right? So they had seen my toxicology report already and I popped for a lot of things. I didn't know that at the time. And so they were asking me what happened. And of course, I lied through the whole story. Even uh, daughter's mom and my daughter came and saw me up there. This was all post-surgery. And uh, I remember um, hearing my grandparents, mom, dad, talking to the doctor, telling, telling them not to give me any pain meds. Well, I didn't like that. And so uh, I had to talk with the doctor myself. And I said, look, man, I said, uh, I just had back surgery. Like, I need some kind of pain medication. Like, I'm not comfortable. The doctor agreed to put me on a on a morphine uh, pain pump where you press the little button and you can press it every seven minutes or something like that and get 0.1 milligrams of, of morphine. So I'm sitting in there and I'm, you know, I got my way, you know, I got Timing that. it every yeah. seven minutes. <laughs> well, not enough, it gets better, right? So I found out you can pinch the hose of the morphine drip. So if I wait 21 minutes, I can get 0.3 milligrams of Dilaudid. Mm-hmm. Or morphine instead of the point one. So I would pinch the hose and then I would save up the drops and then I would drop them and, I, and it would put me to sleep and give me super high. And so even in a massive amount of pain, dude, the addiction was uh, full fledged. <laughs> yeah. I mean, full, full on me, dude. How did you figure that out? Just by your own trying to figure out well first i scoped out the machine i was like wait well, what can i do here i know there's some morphine in there yeah you're like asking him, yeah. okay what is this <laughs> yeah right all right do you have the blueprint yeah exactly dude i was i was already mulling it over in my brain dude like, he's like hey, all man. skeptical he's like yeah okay what do you do <laughs> yeah exactly dude and i and i figured it out right but um yeah i get out of the hospital um you know, so it's a long little recovery. Uh, I remember them also telling the doctor not to send me home with any uh, any pain medication. And the doctor kind of agreed. He gave me some very mild uh, painkillers. They were um, five milligram hydrocodones, which I can – at that time, I could take probably 15 of those in one sitting and, and not be high. You know, my tolerance had, had grown so much that it was taking large amounts of opiates to get me – to the level I wanted to be at. Did you just go right back to doing what you were doing? Yeah, day five out of the hospital, maybe day four. Uh, called the street dealer to come drop off some some pills. You know, after the, I was at my grandparents' house at this time, and I would wait till they went to sleep. You know, and then I'd call the 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 dope man and say, "Hey, come through." And then it's me on a walker. <laughs> going out the front door dude you know and and anything do anything to get it bro and um to go back to the dope charge um during my recovery process i uh ended up getting a court date they wanted to give me nine months probation uh defer or, uh, yeah nine months probation deferred adjudication it was, it was either that or fight the case that's a good deal yeah and so i took it and took that deal uh, I signed on that deal. You know, I think reflecting on it now, I think that in the hospital that day is probably when I really realized that the opiates were were, were a large problem. Um, there's no reason I should be pinching the hose. There's there's no reason I should be calling the dope man four days out of the hospital. But it, it didn't matter. You know, I was so sick. And by sick, I mean spiritually sick, mentally sick, 
that uh, the consequences didn't matter. Again, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to feel the way I want to feel and I'm going to go by any means necessary. I'm going to get what makes me feel the way I want to feel. Two things in my life have ever really ever mattered and it's the way I feel and the way I'm going to change that if I don't like it. And so that's where I was at, dude. I was in that vicious cycle of I don't feel right, so I'm going to change it. I don't feel right, so I'm going to change it. And that came in the form of opiates for me for several years. And did you ever feel right without changing it? No. I was in so much personal anguish and torture without the pills that I went to any means necessary to get them. Yeah. And never, never took the time to get to the why. Why? Am I masking this? Why am I covering this up? Why do I have to change the way I feel? You know. Okay, so your your conscience is rocked now. Right. What's the next roadblock? When does it when does it change? Next roadblock. Uh, well, there's several. Um, still not still not a very good connection with daughter. And then uh, I was on the I was on probation for those nine months. Well, the first three months, four months went well. Didn't really have any UAs, just kind of coasted through it, really. I mean, I did a little bit of community service, and I paid my dues, really. I think the state of Texas worried about the money, so I paid, and they left me alone for a while. Well, as UAs finally come, and I'm not clean, I fail a couple UAs, and then I realize, hey, I've got to I've got to stop doing these opiates, you know. Um, I'm also smoking weed at this time. That was kind of a constant through my whole career as mm-hmm. a as a drug addict. So I knew I had to stop smoking weed. I knew I had to stop taking opiates or I was going to go to jail. I try to get off the opiates. I substitute with meth. I go back to the friends, the 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 gang friends. And I figured, well, you know, if opiates and, and weed are my problem, I'll put those down and pick this up. Again, of course, it makes no sense now. You know, it's insane because I'm obviously going to fail the UAs for that too. But I figured if I can uh, do a little bit of meth and time it, It'll be out of my system in three three days, you know, and time it with when my drug tests were going to happen. Mm. Well, the problem was I couldn't stop. Can't keep your days together. No, I can't keep my days together. I, you know, I, there was there was no. I didn't want to stop, dude. It was just kind of like let's do this, and then I'll face the music when it comes to that time. Was there a moment that you had with God ever during this time? That didn't really come until uh, I went to prison. Uh, once I failed enough drug tests for probation, they revoked my probation. So I went to jail again. Basically, if, you, if you're on probation, you go to jail, you sit in jail until they decide if they're going to reinstate your probation and you go back on probation or they send you to TDC. So I sat in there, they came at me with an offer. Hey, we'll reinstate your probation, but we're adding X amount of time to it. And I said, well, y'all, uh, I'm going to go sit in jail and serve my time and not be on papers when I get out. I went and served uh, nine months uh, state jail at the Formby Wheeler unit in, in Plainview. Did you stay sober in prison? Absolutely. Didn't I didn't even smoke a cigarette or take a dip or anything. Awesome. How was that? It was different, man. It was, the only way I can explain it was there was some peace there. There was some gratitude there that I was that I was clean and that you know I withdraw I withdrew from from heroin and and pills in county those 100 days i was in there the first three weeks dude they could i was a problem dude i couldn't get off of the couldn't get off the bunk i was weak i was shitting all over the place um i was fever cold chills didn't want to shower 
Oh, I was a problem, dude. They literally had to pull me off the bed and tell me to go wash myself because I was so sick in there. And so um, I get through, uh, you know, or I go to state jail and, and I'm clean. I'm sober. This is the first time that I allowed the God voice to tell me something. First time I listened. Is that what allowed you to stay sober in there? No. Okay. So still your willpower. Yeah, Absolutely. I had reopened the door to connection or communication, at least with my daughter's mom, you know, sending my daughter pictures and I had her a portrait drawn and stuff like that. And we would talk on the phone. I had a phone time in there for whatever reason, my willpower, I think, uh, aligned with God's will there for a little bit. And I ended up reading the Bible cover to cover in, in jail or in state jail. No idea what I was reading. I knew that there was wisdom in it. I knew that there was uh, something I needed to take from it, but it was confusing for me at first, you know, uh, but I did the best I could. And and thank God I had a study Bible that was given to me uh, that, that broke down some things for me. Uh, I got out of jail. Um, grandparents scooped me up, took me back to their house and was clean for about another week or two. Week or two. Yeah. Once I got out, put the Bible down, didn't pick it back up for a while, man. Did you have this, what am I doing moment going back? There was a little bit of that, but it became autopilot real quick. You know, I had gotten so used to that way of life, doing what I wanted to do, self-will again, you know, it took over, man. Complete lack of prayer. There was complete lack of trying to renew that connection on a daily basis. There was... um Lack of spiritual maintenance. Yeah. And so I think that's when the transition came. The It became a thing of like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And it turned into, I got to do this because I have to do it. I don't know how to stop. Yeah. It consumed my lifestyle, my family life, any type, any resemblance of a relationship that I cared about within the family was gone. Hopelessness is starting to set in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, definitely. Yeah. Hopeless, um, self-pity, dude, that's one of my the worst feelings that fueled my addiction for quite some time was, was self-pity. Poor me. Here I am again. Why am I doing this? Why aren't you being a dad? And I didn't have the answers to those questions. You know, I just knew that they were questions and I couldn't answer them. And so what am I going to do to not feel that pain? turn back to my old ways and do what makes me feel better temporarily, right? Until it comes back on, then I'm using more. When it comes back on, then I'm using more. So I'm caught in this loop of numbing, numbing emotion and then feeling emotion, then numbing emotion and feeling emotion. So anyway, I of course go back to my, my drug of choice, which is opiates, uh, which came in the form of heroin. This time, a lot cheaper than Big Pharma, a lot cheaper than buying pills. I had a buddy that was already in the mix. Uh, he taught me how to use needles, um, and that's uh, that's when I first started IV. IV use, how far down does that take you from all the other external uses? I would say that that unleashed a monster that uh, that even myself wasn't prepared for. I had already been through some things, right? But that using a needle is was the game changer for me. It really took me down to the depths of hell, dude. At the time, while I'm in it, right, it was the greatest thing ever. It's the only way to use drugs is with a needle. The, you get the best feeling, you know. Uh, it's very um, euphoric. 
it brings you back, man. It want you want more. I got stuck. I got stuck in that in that cycle as well, man. And um, and of course, you know, I run out of money pretty quickly. And so I go back to the meth friends and uh, I know I can sell meth to get some money to buy my heroin. And so uh, that's what I did. I went back to the circle members and they put me back on in the meth game. And what I would do is I would stay, I would smoke meth, stay up for three or four days and serve all the tweakers, you know, uh, and, and make enough money to re-up and then also make profit enough to get all the heroin I wanted. And then go check out. Yep. And then I would come home after day three, day four, being awake and shoot heroin to go to sleep. And I would be out for probably 18 to 26 hours and wake up and do it all again. That lasted for about two years. Man. Um, and I was emaciated, dude. I was sick, physically sick. I lost a whole bunch of weight. I wasn't eating. I remember just waking up sore, dude. Like just, and I didn't even do anything. Rode around in a car all day selling dope. And I lost probably, I don't know, I was probably 110 pounds. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine. So when did you surrender? So during that two-year endeavor where I'm doing meth and heroin and, and toggling between the two, I catch more charges. I get pulled over with um, four to 200 grams of meth. Oh, I get pulled over with one to four grams of heroin. <laughs> uh, and I've got a pistol under my hood. In my car. That's real game. That's Man, dude. yeah. That's a charge. Yeah, that's that was a heavy one. And it, I'm I'm getting arrested. I'm like two to ten years. You know, uh, a four to two hundred plus a gun charge. I might even get some Fed time. It might be it might be U.S. Marshals coming to get me this time. You know, and so I'm fully expecting to stay in there because I had I had made a phone call when I got there like. Hey, Granny, you know, I'm a, I'm in jail again. Can Bye. you, can you bomb me out? <laughs> Click mom, dad, no. And so I'm fully thinking I'm in full heroin detox right now too. Oh, I'm in a cell full of black men. Um, and they are not happy that I will not get off the bed and go wash my ass. Um, and so I'll tell them like, Hey man, I'm sick on heroin, you know, and they're like, oh, we don't care. You stink. And so they literally make me get up, you know, it's either that or I'm trying to fight five large men while withdrawing from heroin. And I said, okay, I'll go shower. <laughs> I'll take yeah. the shower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I, I go take the shower. I lay back down and go back to sleep and uh, I get woken up, land in ATW. That just means you get out. And uh, I finally get to leave and Ashley's there to pick me up. You're the one that bonded me on, you know. Oh, thank you. Thank God, you know. Um, I was kind of talking to her and I was selling dope out of her house. And so, like, we get back to the house and, I mean, she already knows what's up. Like, I need some heroin, you know. I'm sick. So she's already got it there. Here I am, again, facing two to ten. Most likely. I don't know yet. All I know is I'm bonded out. And then that's when John reached out to me. Hey guys, thank you for listening to part one of Landon's story. Check back with us in two weeks. We're going to find out who John is and what happens from here with Landon's recovery. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and share it with somebody. Again, thank you for checking us out, and we'll see you again in two weeks for part two.
blame the cops, dude. I'm like, y'all are ruining my life. <laughs> <laughs> I remember saying that to him, dude. And uh, they're like, no, you're ruining your life. Like, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so.